Hello and welcome to another episode of Change One Thing, the show where we explore if tomorrow will really be what tomorrow will be. Hi, it's Lani and on today's episode I'm talking with Emily Nicholson. Emily is Associate Professor of Conservation Science at Deakin University's Centre for Integrative Ecology. She is a passionate conservationist and in her work develops theories and tools to help make complex environmental problems understandable for decision making. Emily is acknowledged as an outstanding female leader in STEM research and in 2017 received an inaugural Inspiring Women Fellowship for her work. Her research has been driven by a desire to protect our precious environment, impacting projects locally and internationally. As a mum to three young boys, Emily is also passionate about finding better ways to manage the challenges of family and career. Emily is such a lovely person with strong ideas backed by incredible research, talking about something that affects us all, the health of our environment. It's time once again for Change One Thing with Associate Professor Emily Nicholson. Emily, you've been described as a passionate conservationist. Is this something you grew up thinking about? I think I grew up always loving nature and always feeling really comfortable and relaxed in nature. We had holidays down at the beach like so many Australians and I would just be, spend my whole day looking for crabs, looking for mm-hmm. birds and, and just generally being outdoors and I think that just carried me through all my life really. Where did you guys go on holidays as a kid? Did oh, we're you... really lucky. My grandparents bought a house um, in the 60s at, down at Walkerville near, near Wilson's Promontory. Oh, beautiful. And so we would spend summers there with all my cousins and aunts and uncles and uh, going out in the canoe and seeing dolphins and seals and just exploring the bush really. And it was very isolated. There was kind of a little camping ground and back then there were only, you know, 20, 30 houses. Mm. Uh, And so it was really felt quite wild. Yeah, amazing. And were your parents avid conservationists as well? Not really. I come from a family. I'm the only scientist in my family and in my extended family. So mm. my mum uh, was a teacher. She's a retired primary school teacher and, and taught Italian and ESL. And my dad's a political cartoonist. So he oh, wow. spent his <laughs> life drawing and commenting on the world's events and, and political events. Since he retired, he's become an avid uh, conservationists and really into restoration at his house at Mornington and developing a native garden and, and making a friends group to do restoration along that, that bit of the coast. So he's, he's come to <laughs> that now. Probably he always had a latent love of nature that he didn't get to express as much in his job. You've got three young kids and you're active in raising awareness about existing inequities and ways of successfully juggling the challenges of family and career. Emily, do you have any tips for any of our mums or dads out there listening about how to juggle these two ginormous tasks? It's really hard (laughs) (laughs) and you'll get used to being very tired, but I think that's all parents, (laughs) actually all grown-ups as far as I can tell. Yeah. (laughs) Um, 
Probably my biggest tip is to ignore most of the advice that you hear. <laughs> One of the things when you become a parent is you get endless advice about mm. everything uh, and you just have to pick and choose what works for you. So there's no formula, there's no uh, best way of doing it. You've got to work out what works for you and your family. Mm. And I think the biggest thing is not to be afraid to challenge the system. There was one job that I applied for a fellowship um, several years ago and I already had two kids and I was working part-time and I wanted to keep working part-time and I was thinking about having a third. Mm. And so I emailed them and said, can I take this, if I'm successful, can I take this fellowship part-time and what's your policies on maternity leave? Mm. And they said, oh, we don't have a policy on that. We'll go and write one. And so they (laughs) went away and wrote it. And so I think that's what you often just have to ask the question and, and push back, but also when you see others in a situation where they're having to push back, really support your colleagues because it's Mm. better for the whole community if we can um, change things and make it easier to do, not just work. Absolutely. And do you have any sort of personal examples of when juggling family and career out there has been quite difficult? I know we've probably got a few listeners out there who are going to be able to relate to this in some way or another. Yeah, when I was on maternity leave with my second son, uh, I was asked to give a presentation at the Royal Society in London. I I was living in London at the time. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, yeah, I can do that. (laughs) I accepted it when I was pregnant. And then when I had to give it, my baby was three weeks old. And so I was pretty much delirious with sleep deprivation. (laughs) And a friend of mine who also had a small baby came and looked after the baby for me while I gave up, uh, got up and and gave the talk. And I honestly have no idea what I said in that (laughs) because I was so unbelievably tired and then went back to to juggling a little baby. Mm. But yeah, sometimes you just get up and keep going. You just, the show must go go on, so to speak. Um, What existing inequities do you feel we are still dealing with probably as women like what you're talking about there um, it it can get a little bit more difficult I think one of the real challenges is uh, there's no reason why any job can't be done part-time as far as I can see Mm. but there's firstly sort of a lack of imagination of how we can um, re- recreate our workforce to allow part-time work and you don't need kids to want to work part-time you might have lots of other things that you want to do in your life more craft um, caring for elderly parents and so Mm. forth but just having that flexibility around work and people understanding that people everyone has their own backstory that there's different things going on in people's lives that mean that we all need to be a bit more sympathetic and generous I think in our expectations of people's times yeah, that's beautiful. Beautifully put there, Emily. Um, you received a Vesky Inspiring Woman Fellowship. Uh, what is this and how did it assist you on your path? That is an amazing fellowship scheme aimed at women who are in the midst of having kids or coming back from having kids. And Vesky is Victoria's innovation fund uh, that was set up 15 years ago. I just was at last Friday at their 15-year birthday party. And When they set up the Inspiring Women Fellowship, they set up something really new. Most grants for women are, if I can sound so flippant, basically they give you a small grant that, you know, a few thousand dollars, maybe maybe up to $25,000, and and in the case of the L'Oreal Fellowship, a bag of makeup. (laughs) And that is helpful, but 25 grand doesn't get you very far in scientific research. Mm. 
And the Vesky Inspiring Women Fellowship is 150000 over three years. So it is a genuine grant. Mm. It was incredibly competitive. Basically um, loads of women applied and I think it was they applied because they finally felt they had a right to apply, that they were entitled to apply for, apply for something um, that was aimed at women with kids, that they were qualified. And so it had higher rates of application than the equivalent fellowship schemes uh, for the Australian Research Council, for example, in that year. And that just shows the demand for support for women in science who are struggling through this really tricky period when you're having kids and trying to build your career trajectory. So that was mm-hmm. a really fantastic fellowship. I'd love to see that repeated by other organisations. Uh, it's really quite unique. For me, it um, allowed me to support my postdoc. Uh, Lucy Bland, who um, was able to push through a whole lot of uh, fantastic research on ecosystem assessment and ecosystem conservation. And also it it helped cover childcare costs as well, which, as any parent knows, (laughs) is quite a lot, (laughs) especially when you've got more than one kid. Yeah. And do you think we're sort of heading that way um, as a society? It's becoming a little bit easier for, um, you know, women to to have a career and have children. Like it's becoming a little bit more um, those inequalities are balancing up a little bit more. I think it is. It's really slow progress. Yeah. Um, Deacon, for example, you know, our vice chancellor's a woman, our deputy vice chancellor of research is a woman, um, our dean, um, executive dean of science engineering and the built environment is also a woman. So we have really great incre- improvements in, in terms of representation. But in my discipline, for example, fewer than 10% or fewer than 15% of professors are women in ecology. And a lot of the time people think, oh, it's just a matter of time, this is a legacy um, because of past imbalance. But that's not true. Undergrads in ecology have been uh, the majority women for decades and it's not coming through. Some analyses have suggested if we just passively wait for things to change, it'll be centuries until we reach equality. So there's clearly some systematic biases in the system that make it harder Part of that is kids, but it's not the only one. If it was just kids, we would see the world run by women without kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, that's clearly not the case. Um, and so I think there's a whole lot of things. The big, one of the big ones is probably implicit bias where people don't even realise they're being sexist, but you really can't discount, you know, active misogyny and sexism <laughs> as well, which I think probably plays a bigger part than you realise, yeah. unfortunately. Absolutely. Well, we're very lucky to have women like you out there um, spruiking all of this um, and trying to balance out those inequalities. Uh, Emily, you have been acknowledged as an outstanding female leader in STEM research. Can you tell us about this? What is it and what's your research around that? Yeah, so STEM includes science, technology, engineering, maths and sometimes medicine if they put two M's on. (laughs) Uh, My particular area is conservation science. Mm -hmm. So and in particular my research focuses on how we can safeguard ecosystems um, and but more broadly how we can safeguard nature into the future and make sure that we still have a, a sustainable natural world as we move forward. And in the last decade in particular I've been working with a a fantastic team of international researchers and practitioners from all around the world to develop a new approach for assessing risks to ecosystems. So, 
you know when you go to the zoo and there's a sign with the animal's name and a photo on a district where it lives in the world and then it will have a whether it's endangered or critically endangered or vulnerable and those um that that risk status is determined by a set of rules and the main globally accepted rule set is uh, run by the IUCN, which is the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, which is the world's biggest environment and, uh, environmental organisation. Uh, and it's one of the oldest ones and uniquely has UN observer status. So it's a really important for setting the global standard for how we do uh, some of these assessments for na of nature. So for the last decade, we've been developing a comparable system to be able to determine whether an ecosystem is at risk of extinction, except we call it collapse rather than mm. extinction. It's not quite the same thing. Um, a species goes extinct when the last individual dies and it's a bit harder to say that an ecosystem is um, where the last individual is. Um, so we um, developed this method that can, uh, can analyse or assess whether an ecosystem is at risk of being lost and all the biodiversity that it supports and the processes that it supports as well. Mm. And that's been really exciting to be involved in, not least because they're a fantastic group of people and it's been really innovative research, uh, but it's also seen a lot of global uptake. So we've had over 2,500 ecosystems assessed in 100 countries. We've had several countries adopt it into their legislation, including um, in Australia. And so that now in New South Wales, for example, if an ecosystem is listed as endangered, it's using this same set of criteria that we developed. Mm. So this IUCN Red List is the world's most comprehensive inventory of the global conservation status of biological species. Is this all species? And how do you sort of evaluate that risk that you're talking about of, of species that are potentially going to collapse or become extinct? Yeah. So there's two red lists. There's a red list of species and that one has been established um, since uh, the 60s actually and became quantitative in its approach in the late, in the early 90s. And um, over 100,000 uh, species have been assessed under the red list of threatened species. And um, that's based on declines in their population size or their distribution or, or having a very small distribution or if they have a really small population size because if you mm. have a small population size, then the, you're at, you know, at, really at high risk of, of something, some disaster happening and all of them die and go extinct. Uh, and so that's the species red list. And then we have the ecosystem red list, which is a newer one, and it's really only was adopted um, as the global standard five years ago and so we're in our infancy uh, mm -hmm. so it's baby steps so far um, but has had a lot of uptake. Uh, when we're assessing risks to ecosystems it's a little bit harder than for species. So for species you can concentrate um, on population size on, on how many there are, how many individuals there are and that's pretty well understood. It's pretty easy to count as well. I mean mm. really hard to count in <laughs> many ways but at least it's, it's a bit more quantifiable. When we're looking at risk to ecosystems, we're interested in is their distribution declining? Is, is there, where they exist, is that getting smaller? So, mm. for example, is it being turned into cities or farmland? Uh, we're also interested in if it's got a really small distribution because then you're at risk. For example, if you only occur in one place uh, and, for example, the Kurong only occurs in one place and... Uh, you can't create it anywhere else and it's the mouth of this, the Murray River, which is 
highly uh, disrupted and highly degraded. So that system is really at risk because of that. We're also really interested in not just if an ecosystem is disappearing, but if it's changing. So, Mm. for example, the Great Barrier Reef is unlikely to completely disappear, but what you see is this degradation um, through coral bleaching. You see coral cover reducing, um, massive mortality, and that will mean reduction in the diversity of species in of coral but also fish and a change in how that ecosystem functions. And those are the sorts of things that we're really interested in measuring in the past and pr- making projections or forecasts about how they'll change into the future. Mm, and we were just talking uh, pre-show about David Attenborough gives a, a sort of a good uh, gives us a good concept of what's happening up there on the Great Barrier Reef uh, in his new series, um, which is being sort of. Uh, shown at the moment it really gives people it's quite eye-opening because they really get in there and they show you the how and the why of why that coral reef is sort of not disappearing but um, very quickly um, you know getting quite smaller isn't it yeah and it's really the biggest thing is it's just changing rapidly in terms of how it it can continue to support life Mm. and those um the the coral bleaching events are the massive one where you've seen huge amounts of die off of corals and coral reefs aren't just important for nature conservation they're really important for people as well you know for the economy for um tourism for example about great barrier reef is enormously important Mm. for australia but they're also really important for, for example, protecting the shoreline from storm surge and hurricanes and things like that. So they have enormous value in um, in what they call coastal protection. So say looking after the people behind basically and protecting them from the, the wild weather and also sea level rise. And they're also really important for things like fisheries. You can imagine the diversity and the abundance of fish life on the Great Barrier mm. Reef sustains whole industries um, that are really important for Australia again. So while it's absolutely as a piece of our natural heritage, saving the Great Barrier Reef is absolutely critical, but Mm. it's also really important for our well-being and our economic future as well as our environmental future. What's in simple, really simple terms, what is coral bleaching? I'm not the expert on coral (laughs) bleaching. I'll give it a go. The best explanation I saw was uh, by Professor Emma Johnson on Mm. the catalyst, I think it was, that they did on the Great Barrier Reef. And as a disclaimer, Emma's my sister-in-law, so um, I am (laughs) spooking spooking the family. Um, (laughs) But basically uh, when it gets too hot, the algae in the coral, which is what gives the coral its colour but also lets it photosynthesise, like get food from the... The, the sunshine, um, starts to produce nasty chemicals and the coral spits it out. I think that's right. And so then they lose their colour but they also lose their ability to photosynthesise and get food and if they don't adopt more algae then they die. So we'd obviously see all the fish in that environment would 
have to sort of go somewhere else to get um, to get food or to get, shelter you know, and yeah. so on. Yeah, so the whole system then gradually degrades. But as I yeah. said, I'm not the I'm no expert <laughs> on coral reefs. I have to uh, I have to admit. Oh, that's okay. Um, if you could change one thing about what's happening now in terms of uh, species or ecosystems becoming extinct, what would that be? Thinking of our future. So one of the really big things that is apparent on a lot of issues, but in particular on um, action for climate change and for environmental protection and, and nature conservation, is the gap between what the public wants and what our p- politicians are willing to do. Mm-hmm. So this year a new poll came out that said that over 60% of Australians rate climate change as one of the greatest risks to our national interest, as the greatest risk to a threat to our national interests. And in people under uh, 40, I think it was, so young people, it was at 75%. Mm. And yet Australia ranks amongst the worst in the OECD for climate action. And our politicians are really unwilling, seem unwilling to to, to really go out on a limb and do the things that are needed. And we're going to miss our targets, what, mm. we've, what we've said that we would do under the Paris Accord because of this unwillingness. And so it's this gap between the, what the public wants to do and what our politicians do. And a large part of this is because our politicians don't, are not representative of our population. So they're mostly old white men. And that group is the one that's least willing to act compared mm. with young people and women. And so mm. what I would love to see if I could click my fingers <laughs> would be to see a more representative parliament that was more able to represent the the um, the wishes of our population and that they're more willing to go out there and make those changes that need to be done. I absolutely love that and completely agree with what you're saying there. And I know that our targets, our carbon targets are, you know, we're exceeding them um, and they're going up just multiplying and, and they should be actually going down. And I like to think that that click of the finger would not be like Thanos. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Killing up the people. Be more like, spoiler alert, the end of Endgame where everybody comes into the room and everybody is there and and that we can all have a voice. That's yes. how I like to see it. And how good is Endgame? It's excellent. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a late I, comer to the Marvel thing and I love it. Oh, I absolutely loved it. I thought it was the best one, to be honest, that uh, I'm a bit of a Marvel nerd myself. But, um, yeah, I really liked it. Uh, let's talk about conservation of ecosystems closer to home. I've pulled this from an article in Deakin University's Disruptor and uh, it goes like this. Closer to home, the massive, spectacular mountain ash forests stretching across 150,000 hectares of Victoria's central highlands from King Lake to Woods Point and the vast saltwater lagoon ecosystem in South Australia's Coorong are both critically endangered ecosystems. The mountain ash ecosystem is threatened by a combination of logging and bushfires and experts are predicting it will almost certainly collapse in the next 50 years. Emily, this is heartbreaking. I didn't know this. And, you know, this is so close to home for any of us, you know, in Victoria, even in Australia. Tell us about your research into this. Yeah, so I wasn't involved in the Mountain Ash study, but it's a really, really outstanding example of a great amount of research that provides a really comprehensive picture 
of what's happening to this ecosystem. And they looked at climate change projections, they looked at past changes, bushfires and logging. And the big thing for this ecosystem is we're at risk of losing all the old growth. And it takes over 100 years to get old growth forest. So if you chop it all down or it all gets burned, mm. then we have to wait. And all the things that depend on that, like the beautiful Leadbeater's possum, uh, will go extinct in the meantime because that they depend on that. So we always need a certain amount of old growth forest to allow those species, mm. not just the possum, but all the other old growth dependent species to persist into the future. And speaking of bushfires, which obviously are pretty um, prevalent here in Victoria and throughout Australia, is that something that's been obviously happening for hundreds, probably thousands of years? Are they ever beneficial to an ecosystem or completely not at all? No, that, I mean, I'm, again, I'm no expert in fire ecology, but mm. most Australian ecosystems are quite often dependent on on fire and certainly fire adapted. So some, mm. some plants only uh, reproduce after fire, for example. So their seed only sets after fire or they only flower after fire. The problem for the mountain ash is that we've had these massive fires and that's a product partly of climate change but also the way that we suppress fire so we don't let fires just occur. We um, worry about having fires due to um, damage to property and so we've changed the way that fires happen and when they and then with climate change as well when they happen they're really massive mm. and so that has been a disruption to these systems and so the mountain ash what's happened is a lot of it's been burnt and then we're also logging it as what remains and so the the combination of those um, is what threatens that system and it's not because fire is not a natural thing in that system it's just the way that the fire regime has changed. This episode is presented by Deakin University. You can find all of the show notes and other great content related to this chat at disruptor.deakin.edu.au or find us on socials at Deakin Research. So we're sitting not too far from Port Phillip Bay right now. What's the research with the Great Southern Seascapes project that you've been involved in uh, and what's going on here in Port Phillip Bay? Yeah, so similar to the, the work that's been done for the mountain ash forest in looking at what the benefits that, that these ecosystems bring to us, the Mapping Ocean Wealth and the Southern uh, Seascapes project has been trying to quantify some of the benefits that we get from coastal eco and marine ecosystems. And in particular, we're interested in these, what they call coastal wetlands, and some of them are above water and some of them are below water. So we've got seagrass, mangroves and salt marsh ecosystems. And we're interested in trying to quantify and map the, the benefits that they bring us. And these include uh, fisheries, both recreational fishing and also commercial fishing. Um, seagrass, for example, is really important as a nursery habitat for really important species like the King George whiting, which is very popular mm. for fishing um, around Melbourne. Uh, we're also interested in how they sequester and capture and store blue carbon. So this is a really important in our fight against climate change is to capture some of the carbon that would otherwise be going into the atmosphere. And what they found is that these coastal wetland systems can sequester carbon up to 40 times faster than, um, than forests. So they're really, really important. Wow. And we're also interested in some of the recreation of 
recreational fishing and bird watching. And we're also interested in this issue of coastal protection. So plants such as mangroves can really um, safeguard the, the coastline against erosion and storm surge and particularly um, properties behind can have a, a huge reduction in wave action and the risk of flooding mm. as a result of these coastal eco- ecosystems. And I just want to quickly mention the, the people who have helped fund this project or the Great Southern Seascapes program and the Mapping Ocean Wealth program. And this was really driven by um, funding through the Nature Conservancy, the Thomas Foundation, HSVC Australia and the Ian Potter Foundation. And it's also in partnership with uh, Victorian and New South Wales state governments. So it's really great to have this, this excellent collaboration to understand mm. the benefits that we get from nature. Is the urban development sort of down along um, or around Port Phillip Bay and down the Great Ocean Road, is that having a particular um, influence on habitat lost along the coast? Yeah, so people don't really like things like mangroves because uh, mm. they're a bit smelly and mosquito-y, but they <laughs> perform these really important roles. We also have seen a bit of a trade-off, for example, for salt marsh. A lot of the old salt marsh area, and that's sort of at the top of the intertidal, so it occasionally gets, you know, the, the seawater on a high tide coming up over it. Uh, a lot of those have been converted into uh, salt lagoons and we don't really need – they're not functioning to produce salt anymore and so we have the option of whether we convert them back into salt marsh wetlands or whether they become housing developments. Mm. And what um, we've just done some very preliminary research which has been led by my colleague Peter McCready uh, and his research group looking at how quickly salt marsh when it's rehabilitated sequesters carbon and it's really really quite quickly and it, re- it grows back very very well and those systems are really important for a lot of biodiversity a lot of native species like the critically endangered orange-bellied parrot so um, it's really you know, if we can restore those back to salt marsh, then we'll get these great environmental environmental gains, uh, which are also important for our economy if we're talking about blue, blue carbon. Yeah, fantastic. Let's hope that happens. I know, fingers uh, crossed. Yeah. <laughs> Emily, um, tell us about the Tiwi Islands. What are you focusing on there? And where I have to sound really, um, really dumb right now, where are the Tiwi Islands? So the Tiwi Islands are just north of Darwin, about Mm -hmm. depending on which bit you measure, 40, 60 kilometres north of Darwin. They're these um, absolutely beautiful islands that are basically 95% still bush and the Tiwi people um, have lived there for millennia and have maintained their strong relationship with the land and now collectively own the Tiwi Islands under uh, uh, Aboriginal freehold um, and um, title, and they are really um, they're passionate about conserving and protecting and sustaining the Tiwi Islands as an important area for the environment and for culture. And what they want to know is how they can potentially do some small developments that would provide jobs for people on the Tiwis, um, but without. Um, putting their environment and their, these great environmental biodiversity and cultural values at risk. Mm. And so we're working with the Tiwi Land Council to um, develop with them the science that they need to answer their questions about what to do in the future. And one of the really exciting things is that they're looking at um, basically making almost all of the Tiwis um, Indigenous protected areas, which will provide a funding stream for managing 
the conservation values and the cultural values of the Tiwi Islands. So we're hoping that that proposal will get up, that the, that the Land Council has put together or the Tiwi people have put together. We haven't been involved in that, but we will be um, working with them to uh, develop the best science to support the the decisions that they want to make into the future. Mm, and do you get to go up there and hang out and have a look around or will you be going up there? I, hopefully I will be. We've only just embarked on this project. So mm-hmm. it was a, a project we applied many times. It's one of the mm-hmm. great lessons of science is persistence. Uh, <laughs> so four times we applied to the Australian Research Council and the fourth time we were lucky and we were funded. And so that project is just getting underway now. It's in partnership with the Tiwi Land Council and then some of my great colleagues at Melbourne Uni and Charles Darwin University as well, um, up in Darwin. And uh, we're just getting the PhD students on board. So I've been up there a couple of times mm. and um, and then the next three years we'll be working with the, the Tiwi people. Um, probably they're most famous for their amazing art, their sculpture, their pukamani poles, and also their um, extraordinary footballers uh, like the Rioli family. <laughs> and um, actually the... Willie Rioli, who's the father of the West Coast Eagles player, he's the lead ranger, so we work with him um, and his team quite a lot. Wow, that sounds amazing. What can we do, um, for our listeners listening at home, what can we do to, to help conservation just personally around, you know, where we're living? I think one of the really big things is just to get involved and engaged and with your local community, for example, through friends groups and to become more informed. And probably the biggest thing you can do is to lobby your politicians to do more. So to do more on climate change, to do more on environmental protection and on biodiversity conservation, they're probably the, the strongest things that you can do. Writing letters is apparently <laughs> remarkably effective uh, when you write a letter to a politician. But I think that the key thing is to really gain a great appreciation of nature and so that uh, you value it in in yourself that it it Mm. becomes important for you that being in nature makes you happy and calm and and the research shows that being in nature is good for your mental well-being and your physical well-being and so getting out there getting into it makes you Mm. value it all the more Absolutely. Get some of those negative irons happening and uh, yeah, get out there in nature, guys, and write some letters. That's what we can do. Uh, Emily, we've got a fast few set of questions for you that we're going to pump out and we just want your quickest first thing that comes to your uh, mind. Are you ready? Okay. (laughs) What's the best piece of advice you've been given on your path to success? I think the the biggest one is this this thing of paying it paying it forward, is that the expression? Mm, yeah. Where I've been so fortunate to have some brilliant mentors and champions and people I've worked with and so I try to, to, to do that for the next generation um, of scientists but also parents or whoever and just to be supportive of the the paths that people can take because it's everyone's different. Mm, I love that and really when we think of conservation we're thinking of conserving it for our the next the future generations aren't we. So is time really our most precious unrenewable resource? I would have to say that on a personal level possibly yes <laughs> there is never enough hours in the day or days in the week. I make a really big point of never working on weekends so I try and um, obviously things are ticking over in my brain but I never sit down and do work on the weekend. Mm. That means that my days are pretty pressed 
Um, I sometimes work in the evening, but I try to keep weekend time for not work and mm. for family. But it does mean that it's a it's a push. There's never enough time. <laughs> if you could recommend one book to the younger generation to get them on the right path to ensure our Earth's future, what would it be? Just one book. Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow, I think that's the title, by Daniel Kahneman, mm. who's a Nobel Prize winning economist, a great behavioural economist. And through that, I have learnt so much about how my assumptions are false and how you need to really think deeply uh, and not jump to conclusions, particularly about people. And just quickly, another book that I love um, is a children's book. I've read a lot of children's books over the years and um, it's The Snail and the Whale by Julia Donaldson, um, which has this beautiful prose, this sort of um, rhythm to it and it starts, I think, um, this is a tale of a tiny snail and a great big grey blue humpback whale. And it's a story of a snail and a whale who become friends and they travel around the world. So you see all these beautiful ecosystems and then they, um, they get, the whale gets scared by, by people who are being, going around their speedboats and he gets beached. And then it's the tiny snail that saves the whale by going to children who get all the people in and they get the whale back out to sea. And so it's a really nice story just about the, the wonder of nature but also the things that we can do to save nature. Sounds amazing. We'll put that in our link to that in our show notes as well. If your life was a movie, what would it be called and who would star in it? I think my my life as a movie or a TV series would be somewhere, I'd like to think it would be closer to David Attenborough, like our planet, mm -hmm. but it would possibly be more like Utopia, which was that slightly <laughs> dystopic, um, <laughs> dystopian view of, um, of government agencies protecting the environment. Uh, and who would star in it? <laughs> I have no idea. As long as I could be near David Attenborough, I'd be happy. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. I love that. Is there anything that we haven't touched on that you'd like our listeners at home to know? One of the, I've, I sort of, when I was thinking about the one thing I'd like to change, mm. it was a very big one and unlikely to happen, I'd mm. have to confess. So we have a radical change in, in who represents us in Parliament. But on a more immediate thing, a, a more immediate need, I would like to see a greater, much greater investment from our federal government and state governments in understanding the state of nature in Australia. And that means changing the way that we assess ecosystems and species and understand not only their current status and trends but what we can do about ensuring that they persist into the future and so that we sustain nature into the future. At the moment, our legislation basically assesses and, and lists um, species and ecosystems as threatened on a, a very ad hoc basis. So anyone can write up a proposal uh, that we should assess this ecosystem and, and submit that. And so it's very reactive. So whatever you know, nominations come in from the public or from different interested groups. Whereas what we really need is a, a substantial amount of funding so that we can do a very comprehensive assessment of biodiversity at species and ecosystem levels across Australia. And with that, develop a really comprehensive action plan on how we can halt this biodiversity crisis, this extinction crisis where we're losing nature at an unprecedented rate. So it is actually a crisis, like we're actually in the midst of losing a lot of species at the moment? 
Yeah, uh, the extinction rates at the moment are, are overwhelmingly higher than background rates. Mm. That recent UN report, the IPBES or IPBES report, which is the uh, I don't even know what the acronym stands for. It's incredibly <laughs> long. It's equivalent to the IPCC, but for biodiversity. Mm. Um, that UN report showed that we have about a million species or more at risk of extinction in the coming um, decades. And in Australia, we have um, some of the highest extinction rates in the world. And we have 75% of the world is being tra- of terrestrial world is transformed from the natural mm. ecosystem. So I'd say that's a pretty much hitting a, a crisis point, unless we're prepared to, to let these things go. And I don't think we are. I definitely mm. don't think that young people are. I think they have a really different attitude towards the environment. And I think that that, for me, that gives me great hope and optimism that we have this next generation coming through who are so committed and so passionate and I think really will, I really hope will change the world because we're not doing a great job at the moment. Fingers crossed. I have learnt so much in this chat, Emily, and it's been an absolute pleasure talking conservation with you. Hopefully our listeners have learnt a lot as well and we can start making changes and writing letters and getting out there in nature and and just to realise that we are, you know, in quite a crisis point with, you know, so many species species um, possibly becoming extinct. It's really something we really need to think strongly about. It's been great. Thanks for joining us on the Change One Thing podcast. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure to review, subscribe and share with your friends.